We got some new people. <laughs> Feel free to, to find a seat. Today we're going to be returning to Deuteronomy chapter 6 together. And we're going to pick up on verse 10. Page 240. <laughs> yeah. No, me, me and Matt have the same page. <laughs> I'm trying to make you feel left out so you'll get one someday, but you have to have more motivation than that. <laughs> I know it's tough it's tough to change Bible even though I've had this for a couple of years I'm used to flipping around through a thinner Bible and I'll try to find a book and I'm like that's in the, where is it <laughs> well as we start here my 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 question for y'all is what does loving God look like so how would you answer that question. What does it look like to love God? Yeah, obedience. What do you think, Kevin Bell? What does it look like to love God? Yeah, fearing him, wanting to be uh, in his word, communion with him. The, all of these things that you guys have said are the stuff that we're going to read here in Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 25. It's like you've already read and learned this stuff. But we have the joy of being re-reminded of these things as we fellowship here. As you remember, Deuteronomy 6 begins with a, a call to covenant love. This is Moses' main sermon point is the... Israel should listen to God, that Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these were words that were to be on your heart. They weren't just to be in a book or just spoken outside of you. They were to be believed from within and to be lived out with everything that God has given you. And we talked about you know, the nature of love. What, Corey Coleman, what is love? Yeah, yeah, so part of the nature of love, it's that you know, you're remembering rather than forgetting. You're putting God in, in remembrance through different things you do rather than being absent toward them. That's part of the nature of love. The other is that you're esteeming the, the interest of others more highly than your own. You know, one of the ways we talked about is that love is about covenant keeping, which esteems the interest of others above yourself. Uh, love is a choice. It's a commitment that you make where you're seeking to give rather than to get. And Israel was called to love Yahweh with all their thinking, feeling, with all of their person and all of their resources. They were to have a unique relationship to the one unique God, which they weren't to share with 
anyone or anything else. And these words were not just to be something that they knew about or heard about. These words were to be on their hearts. It wasn't enough for them to just stand around and say that they would obey Yahweh. They needed a heart to fear him paired with feet that actually followed him. So it wasn't enough just to hear messages from Yahweh or to talk about obeying him. They needed to start going in obeying him, which we saw that in Deuteronomy 5, 28 to 29, where the text reads, Yahweh heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me, and Yahweh said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. Remember what they said? They said, we'll do everything that, that Yahweh has said. And he says, they have done well in all that they have spoken. But here's what the problem was. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments all the days that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. So it wasn't enough for them to just stand around and say that they would obey him. They, they needed a heart that would fear him and you know, feet that would actually follow him. And as you're going through Deuteronomy, you should recognize a tension here that Israel doesn't have the heart that they're commanded to have. And so you're wondering, how is this going to be resolved ultimately? And if you've been getting a sense that all of this is pushing forward to the need for Christ to come and the need for a new covenant and the need for a better covenant and with better promises, you're, you're getting the point of all of the tension that's being presented here. Uh, you're getting where all of this stuff is moving, and I don't want to keep you in suspense for weeks and weeks and weeks, so flip over to Deuteronomy 29.4, so you get a little bit more of the, the context of Moses' messages here. Deuteronomy 29.4 says this of Israel. He says, Yet to this, this day, Yahweh has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Let's give you an understanding. Like who, what are these people like that he's preaching to? What are these people like that he is saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Uh, he wasn't saying, well, expecting that they could just muster this up from within. He's saying, what he's trying to point out is you don't have this, which is stated explicitly in Deuteronomy 29.4. So where are they going to get it? Look in chapter 30, verse 6. How are you going to get this new heart? Verse 6. Moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart. So you're to love God with all your heart. Uh, you don't have a heart like this. <laughs> so since you don't have one like that, you can't do this. You don't, you don't have the ability to do any of these things that are being preached to you. Well, where can you get that then? It says, Yahweh will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. So this is God by grace is going to do for you what you need to, to be done here. He's going to do for you what he has commanded. And that's important to remember in Deuteronomy and for me to not leave you hanging for several weeks to know that that's what happens. But I want you to very much, you know, experience the tension as it's presented in the text because it, it should be making you think we need a better covenant than this one. 
We need better promises than this one. We need somebody who can do for us what God has commanded us to do because we don't have the ability to do it. We need a salvation that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Savior alone. Otherwise, none of this stuff can happen or work, which Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, if you want to flip over there with me, you'll see how all of this is tied together, where Deuteronomy 30 is tied into Jeremiah 31, which connects into Hebrews 8, which connects back into those texts, starting in verse 6, is Hebrews 8, 6. Speaking of Christ, to which the law points to, says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will complete a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds, and upon their hearts I will write them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So you can see... The, the old covenant, the first covenant, was always made to, to push people to the new covenant and to have a better mediator than Moses. Like you need a mediator who doesn't sin and doesn't die and doesn't get corrupted like everybody else. You need something that has better promises than just judgment. Uh, you need the promise of salvation. You don't need just the command to have a new heart. You need the promise that God will give you one. And as we had talked about these elements of loving God that includes having his word on your heart, it says in the new covenant, he does that. He internalizes the word. But we also recognize what loving God looks like, it's teaching others. As we've seen, we're going to see this over and over in Deuteronomy. But he says, when he brings about this new covenant, it's totally complete. You won't have to teach anybody to know Yahweh because everybody's going to know him when that covenant is totally fulfilled. And so going back to Deuteronomy 6, picking up verse 10 to the end of the chapter, this chapter moves from a call to covenant love to a call to fear the Lord. And it presents these tests that are internal and external. You know, there's the internal test of, you know, do you fear God from within? And then there's external test where you're then putting away other gods and you're teaching others on the outside. There's the internal test of, you know, not forgetting, not being apathetic toward God because you fear him and you're remembering him and the external test of actually keeping his commandments and walking in them, which 
you know, when you sum, sum all of this up, you know, what does loving God look like? It looks like fearing God and keeping his commands, which is where Solomon got that really good uh, book conclusion for Ecclesiastes. He got it from Deuteronomy. Which, just a quick little side note, when, uh, and especially if you, ha if you have a, a LSB, you'll see this, but when Solomon prayed before the temple, when he was dedicating the temple, he didn't pray for wisdom, he prayed for a listening heart. He was praying to be Deuteronomy 6 kind of guy with Deuteronomy 6 kind of conclusions in his life and living. He was praying for a listening heart that feared God and kept his commandments. So Deuteronomy is uh, setting up for wisdom literature. Yeah. Uh, Solomon was just believing and preaching his Bible. Now, back from the side note, back on the main points here. Well, let's look at verse 10. It says, then it will be when Yahweh your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you great and good cities which you did not build and houses full of all good things which you did not fill and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you will eat and be satisfied. Now, will Israel be brought into the land because of the Mosaic Covenant or the Abrahamic Covenant? Yeah, I saw, I saw, I see it, Abraham. <laughs> yeah, you, you can see that there. It, he says, Yahweh, your God, is going to be the one who brings you in. He doesn't say, well, you guys are going to bring you in because you're going to obey me, just like you said, <laughs> within the Mosaic Covenant. And it's like, well, what you're going to get from the Mosaic Covenant is the blood back on your heads and the judgment and the death and the condemnation that you deserve but why is it that you're going to go into the land? Is it because you guys have uh, an awesome military? Is it because you guys are awesome at law keeping and just teaching other people? Is it, no, it's because I made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that's continued to the 12 tribes, and Moses, includes the Levites, all of you guys. Uh, that's why it's going to go forward. It's going to be f go forward because it's the promised land. You hear that? It's not the earned land. It's the promised land. It's like, well, why, why did we get it? It's like, well, you know how much I can bench? <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if you've seen our uh, military, but, uh, or you know how smart we are. <laughs> no, it's because of who their God is and what he's promised to do for them. Uh, and you see, they're going to be blessed with all sorts of things, which they didn't build for themselves. Like, you're going to have houses you didn't build. You're going to have vineyards that you didn't plant. It's like, well, why are they going to have these things? Well, was it because of their performance? Or was it because of their works? Or was it because of grace? It wasn't because of their work in establishing those things. It was because God was gracious to them and gave them things which they didn't deserve, that they didn't earn and couldn't earn. And going on in to verse 12, we're reminded of what it means to be totally committed to Yahweh. It says, then, you know, when these things happen, beware lest you forget Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house 
of slavery. Why do you think that there might be the temptation to forget Yahweh when you have cool house, vineyard, olive trees, you're eating, you're satisfied, you don't need anything, you have everything you want. Why might you be tempted to forget Yahweh? Yeah, we're fine. We, we think that we're secure. We think that we have no need. We think that our hand has provided those things for us. Uh, therefore, we're tempted to not give thanks to him, to, to not ask him to continue to provide for us our daily bread while we go about seeking his kingdom first. We're just content in the thing that we think is our little kingdom. So he says, don't forget, which we had talked about, Forget, what is this, this word really conveying here? Does it just, it just kind of slips your mind? I just forgot about Yahweh and I forgot about Egypt and I forgot about his commands. It starts with an A and it ends with pathetic. <laughs> Apathetic, yeah. So you're just apathetic towards remembering it. You're like, ah, why, why keep the Passover, you know? Uh, why do that and remember it? It's just, it's just a hassle to, to get a lamb and raise it for a year and go through the whole slaughter and to have to explain to the kids why we're doing all of this stuff. So let's just do what we do every day and not have to worry about all of that sort of stuff. It says, beware lest you forget Yahweh who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. So don't, you know, don't forget that you were redeemed and you were delivered from your old way of life. You need to always be put in remembrance of that. So forgetting is when you do nothing. Forgetting is apathy. For, forgetting is an act of hatred. You know, it doesn't necessarily feel like hatred, but it's displayed in indifference toward remembering. But you see, remembering things is a, an act of love where you're remembering God's redemption. You're remembering that you were delivered from your old way of life. Now, verses 13 to 15 continue to answer this question of, you know, what is it, what does loving God look like? What does it look like to be totally committed to him? Starting in verse 13, it says, Yahweh your God you shall fear, and him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not walk after other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For Yahweh your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Lest the anger of Yahweh your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. What it looks like to, to love God is to fear him. You reverence him, which has showed up in your remembering him and certain practices that you have daily, weekly, annually. That you serve him. Your life is about living for him and honoring him. That you swear by him, which is the idea that you keep your commitment to uphold a reflection of his character and living out his will in the world. And because of this commitment you have to him and you love him with this exclusive, unique kind of love, you're to have no other gods. Uh, there's only one in, in whom you're in this special covenant with, and you can't be bringing anybody else home with you. God is jealous for his glory. Uh, he's not going to share it with anybody else. 
Uh, he's jealous to uphold what his character is like and what his will is. Therefore, you're never to bring any other gods before his presence. Uh, he has given himself to, to Israel, and he will not accept them giving themselves to another. And he says, if they do, I'll destroy both of you. So the implication for Israel, as we've seen, is there, there's only one God. There's only one creator. There's only one controller of everything in history. There's only one redeemer. And you can't bring pagan ideas and practices on the same level where you think, well, we can also get redemption through political alliances or by appealing to having these other particular gods or being like the other people around us. He says, you can't have the kind of relationship you have with me with anything else or anybody else. God is a jealous bridegroom, and he will be angry if they're unfaithful, and he will destroy the ones they were unfaithful with and them and their unfaithfulness. Verse 16 begins to, well, continues to pick up on these internal, external tests, so we've talked about them. And it says, you shall not put Yahweh your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So what was it that they were testing in God's character exactly at Massa? You ever heard, maybe your mom or your grandma when you were acting up, when you were real little, they said, don't test me. <laughs> you, know what, you know what that meant? Or all of a sudden, you, like, you hear the leather belt, the leather belt comes off, it's like, pow! Don't test me. <laughs> it's like, you know judgment's coming. Don't find out if I'm going to be faithful to discipline you. It's just a warning, you know. It's like, look, I don't want to have to put you through this pain, but because I love you, I'll do it. It's the same thing with God's character. You know, what they're testing is his faithfulness to judge. Because they're saying, no, God's not going to judge us. He's not going to judge us if we complain about the water or we complain about the food. God says, don't test me. I'll be faithful to judge you just like I said that I would. It says, instead, you know, verse 17, you should diligently keep the commandments of Yahweh your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of Yahweh that it may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land which Yahweh swore to give to your fathers. So how, do, how can they go about not testing his character? Well, by, by teaching future generations to, you know, in verse 7 we saw it was to teach them diligently. Now in verse 17 it's then to diligently keep those things which are being taught. But you see the same sort of reality in the New Testament when Paul was, he wrote a letter to Pastor Timothy and he told him, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things for as you do this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So you got to get the teaching right and the keeping of that teaching, not just in sound words, but in sound living. So you need to be watching your life and the teaching, but your life should always be conforming to true teaching 
And you should never have bad teaching and then start conforming your life to bad teaching. So you have to diligently keep these commandments. The commandments, remembering that God has a right to be worshipped exclusively. And your neighbor has a right to be loved by you. And the testimonies you're to keep. The testimonies about who God is and what he has done and what he is doing and will do in the future. To keep his statutes, these legal stipulations that reflect God's order in the universe, God's worldview, and how his redemption works, that that would be reflected in the world through how Israel would structure themselves as a nation. And in verse 18, it says they were to do what is right and good in the sight of Yahweh. Now you think about that, who, going back to the very beginning, did not do what is right and good in the sight of Yahweh. Yeah, Adam and Eve, you know, you saw Eve, did, she, she saw that something was good, defined good on her own terms. It was in her sight. She thought it was right, and she went by her own standard and definition rather than by God's. So what's being, what Moses is communicating to, to Israel is we are an anti-fall nation. Uh, we are the curse reversal people. Uh, we don't continue to live out that same error, but we're to be the undoing of all of those things. They were supposed to be about the reversal of the curse and not the continuation of it, which would be something that would be carried out from, would need to be carried out from generation to generation, which we're going to see that in verses 20 to 25, which I've labeled this section section. Catechize questioning kids. Catechize questioning kids. <laughs> Let's look at these verses here, 20 to 25. When your son asks you, and time to come, saying, What do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which Yahweh our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And Yahweh brought us from Egypt with a strong hand. Moreover, Yahweh showed great and calamitous signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. And he brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So Yahweh commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear Yahweh, our God, for our good all our days and for our survival as it is today and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before Yahweh our God just as he commanded us. Now you might have thought that the, the answer to Heidelberg Catechism question number one was pretty long for people to remember. This one is even longer to remember. And it's full of a lot of good and wonderful things here. And what you see what Moses is doing is he's exhorting fathers to, to provide a theological foundation for their children. So teach your children why you're doing all of the stuff that you're doing. Uh, be ready to, to give a, a reason for the hope that is in you when your son asks you about it. Uh, 
they were to provide, fathers were to provide a theological foundation for their children in a, in a world that was competing for their minds. Now, these children, you know, at this point, they had just been raised in the wilderness. They didn't know what it was like to be in Egypt. Uh, many of them had seen uh, their, their parents slaughtered by the wrath of God. And they didn't want to be like their parents. And Moses is giving them a framework for how to understand the world. And he says, you need to do that for your children. You need to help them to understand where you came from and where you're going. Uh, you need to understand who you are in light of who God is and what he has done for you and what he has promised to do. And he's teaching them that you, you interpret all of history on the Abrahamic covenant, which he keeps coming back to, which is really a pretty profound thing to sit back in your chair and to meditate on, uh, just interpreting all of, all of history in light of the Abrahamic covenant. I'll just leave you with that. Uh, now you think about you know, these inquisitive children and I asked, Dad, what does all this stuff in the Bible mean? There's stuff in the Bible that's confusing to kids. There's big words and long sentences and tough concepts and uh, a culture that we don't uh, maybe understand very well. Uh, Dad, why do we believe that God is like that? God, why do we believe that people need salvation? God, how does salvation work? Uh, Dad, why do we have these statutes? Uh, why are we different than everybody else? Uh, why do we make decisions which are so different than our Canaanite neighbors? I mean, look what everybody else is doing. Why would we do anything any different? What does all of this stuff which Yahweh our God has commanded us mean? Uh, these kids are just begging for a Sunday school class. <laughs> As we have talked in the past, you know, multiple times we talk about our, you know, our hermeneutical questions when we're reading the Bible. The first, the first one is what? The second one is <laughs> where? That's a good one. Why? The last one is so with the, the what question, what are we specifically referring to yeah what what does it say and, and when you're when you want to know what does it say what do you do you read the bible all right very simple this is our read the bible uh, you've probably heard the same idea expressed this is this is observation is our observation stage, which is, this is this little question and answer catechism thing that Moses is giving to these dads here. He, he's giving them their Bible. So he says, well, you know, when your kids ask this question, read the Bible. What does the Bible say, Moses? It says this. <laughs> you know, memorize it. Uh, then the why question. What are we talking about with the, the why question? If this, if the what is reading the Bible, what is the why? Yeah, we, we want to know what the author's intent is. Uh, that's 
absolutely critical. I mean, if you just, if you can get that in, in your bloodstream to just, what? What was the author's intention in writing this? It will protect you from all sorts of bad Bible interpretation. But we're trying to explain the Bible. Which we also refer to as interpretation. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I was giving you a few letters there. It's like the Will of Fortune thing, but some people make blunders on that show sometimes. So you got the, you know, the what. Well, how do you know what it says? Well, you read it. But then, you know, why does it say that? Well, you want to know, well, what did the author intend to communicate? Which means you have to explain it the way it is explained in the Bible, ultimately. You want to learn to think the way that the biblical author thought. And that, that involves interpretation. So now the so what. What is the so what? Yeah, a application. So then you're, you got to apply the Bible, which is application, which uh, you might have this old sheet that I had handed out to keep in your Bible. If you don't have this and you want it, you can let me know. I got more of them in better condition than this one. But it's, I titled it Toward Understanding the Bible. And on the back of it, it has, you know, four ways that Scripture applies itself. So when we think about, you know, sermon application, we usually think of it in terms like, you know, what do I do? You know, we usually think of some sort of moral response. But I put, I put some more categories than that in there and how the Bible applies itself and who wants to take a stab at you know, other ways that scripture applies itself besides just a moral response and something to do? Yeah, it's, it's a tutor to Christ. We know that the, the law does that. God's instruction in scripture which that, that can tie into a few things I'll start to to give them to you we, we just worship God for his works you know that's actually application just worshiping God it's like well what has he done you know he, he has led us to Christ to 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 trust in him as the one who accomplishes everything that we need for our salvation another way that scripture applies itself is just learning theology I, can't you see that happening here in our text? It's like, well, what if your, your sons come and ask you a Bible question? So, well, application for you, learn theology. Well, why? So that you can teach theology to your children so that they'll worship God. So Bible's applied through worshiping God for his works. It's applied through learning theology. It has a moral response, which I think we're probably more keen to that sort of concept which the moral response here is you're teaching. You know, you're, you're fearing, this is the thing that you're doing uh, in the moment when your son asks a question. 
And the fourth thing, I would say it's, uh, it, Scripture is applied in teaching worldview in light of redemptive history. It teaches worldview in light of redemptive history, which if you have this little piece of paper, it's that box right there. If you want this, you can ask for it. I'll give you one. And you see, Scripture here is given a worldview and that it's teaching their, their sons how to think about who they are as a people and how to think about their relationship to God, to think about where they came from as a people, where they're going as a people, and who they are today and how they're to live, how they're to think about God and themselves and everything in life in light of redemptive history. Because we had talked about throughout Deuteronomy what it's tying together is not, not just the concept that you have a personal relationship with God, but that, that relationship relates horizontally to a corporate body of people and God's creation plan throughout all of history. And I had given the example in the past and how we think about our sanctification. You know, usually when we think about sanctification, we think about me and God. Think about my trials my, my Bible reading, my, my praying privately. But when you read about sanctification in the scripture, it never just refers to one person and God. It refers to a group of people working out their salvation together and everybody's sanctification affecting everybody else. So if uh, somebody's going backwards in their sanctification, they're corrupting other people as well. But if other people are moving forward, they're helping other people to move forward. And so now you're concerned about yourself in relation to everybody else, and you're concerned about other people in relationship to you and everybody else around you as well, so much so that if you saw your brother struggling in sin, you would do the Galatians 6 thing. You said, let me come alongside you and help you because it's going to be good for you and everybody that you're connected to in life. <laughs> but there's also this other element in with our sanctification that it's related to communicating something about God's creation plan within redemptive history. So what do you think sanctification communicates in the world in terms of God's redemptive plan? Like why, why didn't God just make you totally perfect and just, when you become a Christian, you just can never sin again? We were just absolutely righteous, perfect people on the planet. Why didn't he do it that way? Yeah, God, God wants to, to teach something about himself and his plan for the world, so when you look backwards, you know, there's a, this tension in our lives shows that there is sin in the world. But it also shows God is redeeming people. But, and it's looking back that, that things shouldn't be like this. But it's also looking forward and things aren't always going to be like this. You know, one day things are going to be made perfect. And that's why we live in the tension. So we can be a testimony to that, that the former things are going to become former things. Uh, the new things that are coming are definitely coming. Uh, we are going to get to the new heavens and the new earth and the tension and the sanctification, the battle, the, the fight, the struggle is all a testimony to that sort of 
reality. And that's how Scripture teaches sanctification to us. It relates to a corporate people. That would be the church for us. And God's creation plan and what, what he's doing. It's like, well, what is he doing? He's redeeming people. How do you know? I got this tension in my life. <laughs> I'm not what I used to be, but I'm not what I'm going to be. And Deuteronomy very much majors on that concept of helping a people to, to think about their relationship to God in terms of other people and what he's doing throughout history. And I think that's good for us in that it's easy to just think about yourself you know, individually and like a personal relationship with God. And certainly you have that and that's right and that's good. But the greater emphasis is on this corporate relationship and what God is doing in creation throughout history. Now, here in Deuteronomy 6, 20 to 25, I think about these hermeneutical questions, which are just good logical questions, conversational questions, counseling questions. You know, this is just how good thinking works in the world. <laughs> and when Moses, when he's saying to these fathers, he says, when your sons ask you in time to come, asking you this question, what is he giving to these dads? Is he giving them the what, why, or the so what? <laughs> you're, you're going for all of them. There's an argument to be made for that, I think. <laughs> The, the emphasis is here. So what do you do when your son asks you this? He says, give him the what and the why. And you see, here's the what. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and Yahweh brought us from Egypt with a strong hand. Moreover, Yahweh showed great and calamitous signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. Then he answers the why question. You know, why, well, why did God do what he did? Verse 23, he gives an interpretation. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So he says, well, one of the reasons he did this, that he brought us out, was to bring us into himself because we were you know, outside of relationship to God. He brought us into it. He did this to reconcile us to himself, but he also did this to save us by his grace in order to magnify the glory of his name and to save us because of his promise in the Abrahamic covenant. And you see that God made a promise to, to give them the land which he had sworn to our fathers. It's like, well, why is all this happening? Because God promised to do this. You know, see how that ties into, so we worship God for keeping his promises. This teaches us theology and how we're to think about the world. Uh, this ties in also to worldview. How, how do we think about the world that we live in? Well, we think of it in, in light of the Abrahamic covenant. So when we end up in the land, we shouldn't think, well, it's because you know, we were powerful and wise and amazing. But it's because, well, we weren't that, by the way, which is why they needed to remember their history. But it's because 
Yahweh had made a promise and he's faithful and he's keeping it. This is why Yahweh commanded us to do all these statutes. But the why also connects into a so what, which is to fear Yahweh our God for our good all our days and for our survival as it is today. So, you know, obey God and live. Because if you, if you don't obey him, you don't survive. So the focus on what it looks like to love God is to fear him. What does it look like to fear God? How would you ex- explain that? Fathers, how would you explain that to your sons? Dad, what does it mean to fear God? Yeah, so there, there's a, like the word fear in the Hebrew means fear, <laughs> right? <laughs> so there's this element Corey is bringing out, like there, there's actually like a genuine fear. You're, you're afraid of how, how the person on the other end might respond, things that might happen to you if you don't follow in a, in a certain way. But there also is that, idea of respect or reverence that's built into a particular thing. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe a super common sort of illustration is that, you know, you, you have a, a fear of walking across a, a busy highway. It's like, well, because you have a respect for fast moving pieces of metal, right? <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a healthy fear to have. But because you're Fearing God, there's certain things that you're forsaking. You know, you're, you're forsaking sin. Because you know that when you live in it, though it promises that it's going to give you something good and things will go well for you, it never works that way. <laughs> it, it never goes well for you when you sin. So part of fearing God is forsaking sin. And if you're forsaking sin then you're following him. So it's this idea of repentance, basically. You're, you're turning from sin and you're turning to God to walk in him. You know, fear is tied into this idea of obedience. So you see this, the Shema, as it's presented in Scripture we uh, talked about last week, there's this word play going on with the word hear slash listen and the word keep. And it's, you know, Shema Shamar. It was real easy for kids to remember. They could just, like, you know, run around, be playing a game, Shema Shamar. And they're just, there's this listening obedience that God wants us to have. And it, it, it involves uh, forsaking certain things and keeping others. So when we fear God, we're forsaking sin and we're following Him. So you can put this down in your notes. 
You could get a, a tattoo because you're not under the Mosaic Covenant and you have the freedom to do that. And you just show that to your children, you know. You, you could even get it in Hebrew. I could help you with that to make sure it gets spelled right. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a shame? Like, like, hey, I got this cool Hebrew tattoo. And you're like, actually, that's kind of spelled wrong. <laughs> it happens. So fear and obedience is tied together, but you see it, it involves this, this heart of submission, this heart of reverencing, and it's tied into what is good for somebody. So why God is showing love toward them, what it looks like, and he's saying, these things will be good for you. This is in your interest. I'm doing this in your interest, which, you know, very much we see that in parenting, but that's also the thing that uh, we tend to resist in our heart, which you see that with Israel when they didn't get water when they wanted, when they didn't get the food that they wanted when they wanted, they went to, this is not good for us. God is not good to us. We should have this thing. We have a right to it and we deserve it. But they weren't thinking about uh, how they could reverence God or the fact that he is good and that maybe he's working some sort of good thing through taking some things away from us so that we can see something better and learn something through all of this. Now, verse 25 says, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before Yahweh our God, just as he commanded us. Does that, do those words strike your ear kind of funny? It will be righteousness for us. If we do this stuff, it'll be righteousness for us. Yeah, which we don't, we want to mix those two things up to think the doing leads to righteousness, but you start by being counted righteous somehow, and then you're moving forward in faith. So you think about uh, Abraham, you know, which happened first? Was he counted righteous in Genesis 15? Yeah, Genesis 15, or was he circumcised in Genesis 17? Which obviously 15 comes before 17. Well, which came first, that uh, Abraham was counted righteous in Genesis 15, or he was willing to sacrifice his son, his only son, in Genesis 22? Which came first? 15 comes before 22, right? <laughs> so you don't say, oh, well, the reason that yeah, Abraham was righteous is because he got circumcised and almost sacrificed Isaac. It's like, well, no, he was counted righteous before that ever happened. Uh, it, doesn't say, it doesn't say here, and it will be self-righteousness for us. If we're careful to do these things ourselves and our own strength. But this idea of righteousness is first mentioned in the Bible in Genesis 6-9 and defined by a man named Noah, all right? Genesis 6, 9, if you want to look there. We have the first use of the word righteous. And in the book of beginnings, when you have the beginning of certain points of theology, it comes with the first time a particular word is used in the Bible. 
Genesis 6, 9, it says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. What does it mean to be a righteous man? He is blameless among those in his generations. Noah walked with God. That's what it means to be righteous. It doesn't mean you're perfect. Uh, it doesn't mean that you accomplish things in your own strength. Just You walk with God. Now, what does it mean to walk with God? You trust him. You trust God and you follow him. Uh, when, when he tells you to do something, you believe that it's a good thing to do and you follow him. It's this whole idea of fearing God. You're forsaking sin. You're following him. And then the scripture goes on to build on this idea of righteousness. You, it raises this question. Well, where does the righteousness come from? What makes a guy like that? Genesis 15, 6. That's where you get the answer from Moses in scripture. And you look at Abraham, the, the man of faith, it says of Abraham, then he believed in Yahweh when he had heard these promises that, that God had made to him as he looked up at the heavens and saw the stars. He, he feared God. He trusted God. Uh, the, the word for believe there is amen. You know, he, he amen God. He said, this, this is true. I believe this. And it was counted to him as righteousness. You see, he was justified by faith that God would keep his promises. He was made right with God by trusting God's going to keep his word. You know, he wasn't made right with God by the fact that he did certain things or kept certain things. And so righteousness defined in scripture, it's somebody who walks with God. You, you trust and obey him. And well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like you trust God. And so d does the righteousness come from you or does it come from somewhere else? Well, it, it's alien to you. The righteousness doesn't come from you. It's something that's counted to you from God because you're trusting in his rightness in everything that he does. And so, as it says in Hosea and in Romans chapter one, the just shall live by faith. You know, those, those who uh, are made right in right relationship with God, They'll live faithfully to him. The, the righteous will live by faithfulness is the idea. You see that with uh, Noah, with Abraham. And this is what Moses is calling the people to here. So it, it'll, it'll be trusting God and obeying him if we're careful to do these things. It's, you kind of have that concept of you'll know a tree by its fruit. You know, if, if you're a trusting tree, you'll have trusting fruit. But he's not, he's not saying, well, you can have the, the careful doing sort of fruit and you can come and glue it onto the tree and it'll change it into a righteous tree. But it has to be changed from the roots up and not from the, the fruit back down. That's just how things work in the world. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the, the it is faith in God in Genesis 15, 6, and then back in Deuteronomy 6, 25, you know, the, the it is fearing God, which is, you know, again, it's tied to this concept of faith. 
right? Yeah, if you trust him, you'll reverence him. And trusting and obeying God's word involves internalizing it. As we saw earlier in Deuteronomy, it's to be on your heart. So you're, you're seeking to, to know it so that you live by it. You're careful to live by it. You're diligently teaching it just as it is written. And all of this requires wisdom, which is being laid out in Deuteronomy. What, what is wisdom? Yeah, wisdom, wisdom is a listening heart. It's a, a trusting, obeying heart. It's, it's a skill. I think that the shortest definition I can give of wisdom, wisdom is a skill. But you, you have to learn the skill of trusting God. It's not something that, that comes natural. Uh, you have to train your heart in seeing that he's trustworthy, believing that he's trustworthy, and making decisions that demonstrate that you're believing in the trustworthiness of God. The long definition of wisdom, which I think is laid out in Proverbs, is wisdom is a skilled, sensible approach to life. By God's definition and standard, beginning with the fear of Yahweh and always showing up in one's behavior. So you see that, you know, it's a skilled, sensible approach to life. It's not erratic, it's not random, it's not something that just happens by happenstance. You know, there's a purposeful pursuit of that wisdom but it's not as you define it or as other people define it. It's as God defines it. And he's the standard of it. And he is wisdom incarnate. And he's the example of it. And that ends up being, a, you know, that's a title for Jesus. You know, he is the wisdom of God. And wisdom begins with what? Yeah, it begins with fearing God. And it always shows up in one's behavior. That's this element here because your behavior will be forsaking sin and seeking to follow him. It changes the, the practice and the trajectory of how somebody is living their life. And it requires deliberate strategies. That's this idea of it. It's a sensible approach. You have a, a planned way in which you're going to be learning gospel truth in which you're going to also be teaching gospel truth. You don't think, well, I'll just somehow accidentally be able to, to teach gospel truth to people. <laughs> it's like, no, you have to plan and prepare yourself for that, and you'll, you'll never perform above your preparation. <laughs> so prepare yourself so that you'll be able to, to teach scriptural truth to others in the future. Well, what does it look like if you're apathetic toward doing that? It looks like the book of Judges. That shows us what happens when people just, they forget about redemptive grace. They're just like, you know, we don't need to be remembering that. Uh, we, we have our own definition of wisdom, our own standard of goodness, and we just do whatever is right in our own eyes rather than what is right and good in Yahweh's eyes. And when that happens, it's not long before the people of God plunge into the world's system of thinking and living and so we see these sort of exhortations to remember and for faithful teaching to be passed on to other faithful people who will teach other people who will teach other people and successive generations in the New Testament. One of them's in 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 3, where Paul is, 
has done this for Timothy, and he's telling Timothy, what I've done for you, do for other people. You, therefore, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So he's picking up the same sort of concept of faithful men with faithful teaching and passing that on from generation to generation. He says, keep doing that. Find ways to do that. And know when you do that, you're going to suffer hardship when it happens. Hardship is not some weird side effect to Christian life. It's the normal thing that happens. And one of the opportunities we have to remember God's redemption and to teach it to our children is going to happen this very day in the main service. It involves a little cup and a little cracker. It's an opportunity for us to, to not be apathetic towards remembering redemption, towards remembering where we came from and where we're going. Because when, when we do that together, we're declaring that he's coming again. You know, it's not just a time where we just sit there and think about how bad we are. <laughs> Maybe you need to do that. But it's also a time where we sit there and we think about how thankful we are and the reality that I'm not always going to struggle with sin. Uh, I'm going to have the thing that I want, which is to never sin against God again. Uh, I'm going to have the, the glorification that I'm longing for right now. And I'm declaring that right now and taking these elements and remembering the promise and the certain hope that I have that he is going to come again. Well, Israel, as we know, they had the Passover to remember the Exodus. As the church, we have the Lord's Supper to remember the cross. So you think about that. And the, the Old Covenant, what the, the Exodus was and the, the Old Covenant is what the cross is to the New Covenant. And uh, I, I think that the sign of the New Covenant is, you know, the, the cup and the bread, which the Lord gave to his disciples when he explained, you know, this is the new covenant. It's like, well, what's the sign of it? It's these two things that I, I'm giving you to remember these realities about my body broken in your place and my blood shed in your place. The Lamb's Supper of the Passover, the Lamb's Supper of the Lord's Supper, both are to given to us to remember that we were brought out in order to be brought in. And the a day is coming in which we will be in the land that was promised. And when we have that looking backwards at the cross and that looking forward to the second coming, it changes everything about how we live today. You know, it gives us reasons to, to worship God for his works. It teaches us theology. It gives us worldview in light of redemptive history and the moral response of loving him, trusting him, worshiping him, teaching others about him. So with that, I'll close us in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for your word and these truths that are perhaps very familiar to us, but come from a text in which we didn't expect to find them. We thank you for reminding us over and over and over of the truth of salvation by grace alone and the reality that you have delivered us from our old way of life that you have brought us into a new way of life and that you will totally redeem us that there will come a day when we 
no longer struggle with sin. We pray that, especially for the fathers, that you would help us to wisely, diligently teach our sons, to teach our families, to apprehend these things that you teach in your word so that we would be living examples of them and have the ability to explain them. Help us to understand the, the what, why, and so what of everything in your word so that we could pass that on to yet another generation that would pass it on until another generation until the day that you return. Amen.